as you know, who was what was the movie about Wall Street where the main evil character said greed is good? Uh, that no one rarely does someone say it that crassly, but it's in the air we breathe. That greed is good. How much money do you need? Just a little bit more. Uh, how do we define success? Money. We now we can talk flowers and rainbows around success, but what we really mean is money. So, just as a general first principle, Hector, on this one, Christianity has a lot to say to chasten capitalism and to call it to repentance. Hmm. Uh, idolatry is the worst sin you can do, worshiping a false god. Jesus, when he talked about money, he used the term mammon, which in the culture of his day was a reference to an idol. An God. Yeah, an entity. That's why in your Bible it's probably capitalized mammon, capital M. When we talk about money, we should probably capitalize it because we worship it, capital M. Okay, so greed is idolatry. So any version of greed, whether it's the Freedman School and stockholders, stock market, for a Christian, uh, you're in sin, just to say it bluntly. You're in sin if you're ensnared uh, by greed. Uh, the other thing I would say is that the, the New Testament, but not just the New Testament, the Old Testament warns kings in Deuteronomy. And I won't go into a big Bible study, uh, or Andrea will, will uh, cut it out of the final broadcast. But uh, in Deuteronomy, the future kings of Israel are warned about um, several things, and the, of, of three things, the one was amassing much silver and gold. Then you fast forward to when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, and he had amassed unbelievable amounts of silver and gold. And shortly, at, and he had broken the other two warnings as well. He had, he was lining the walls of his home with gold. He had so much of it. And shortly after that, he fell, and his throne fell, and the nation of Israel was split in two. So there's warnings even in the Old Testament about. The, the danger that wealthy people are in. And then you get to the New Testament and Paul says, teach, teach your wealthy people to be content and not be ensnared. Wanting to be rich will pierce you with many hurts and pains. It's, it won't end well. That's what he's saying about if you desire to be wealthy and learn that godliness with contentment is actually great profit. So on this particular issue, and when Jesus says things like you can't love God and mammon, capital M, money, you can't love God and money, he didn't say it was a bad idea. He said you can't do it. You'll end up loving one or you'll end up hating one if you do that. So on this point, to your point, I think, Hector, and I want you to talk, uh, this is way countercultural. Uh, I don't think that commerce and trade and the market is evil in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But greed is. And then the last thing I'll say is a G.K. Chesterton paraphrase from about 100 years ago. He basically said the scripture is really clear that we can't assume that being rich means that you have great character, which is the assumption in America. Mm -hmm. If you're rich, you must be quite the person. Chesterton said the Christian assumption is actually the opposite. Because here's his phrase. The wealthy are in a peculiar and great danger, a peculiar danger that only attaches itself around wealth. And they are really in true danger if they don't get on their spiritual toes and get repentant and chastised about their attitude towards 
money. So there you go. There's a miniature rant that you triggered. Uh, what is <laughs> what? So what does that make you think about? Yeah, I think what that makes me think about um, is that you know I think that you would also say this, but that money is not the goal; is a tool. Yeah. It's simply the tool, you know, for us to use wisely. And if we are ever making it the goal in whatever mm. context we're in, whether it's our mm. family, our business, nice. our, you know, enterprise, if we're making that the goal, then I think we're going down a path that could be very troublesome. Yeah. Um, just as you said, you know, in scripture, we see mammon yep. and uh, Andy Crouch has a ton of good like resources around this. Yes. Yes, but he, you know his one. One of his big things is a mammon is a is a being is a it's a like deity that yeah. will yeah. start to you know yeah. come out more and more and seek more like allegiance, allegiance. to itself. Mm-hmm. Great word. So if we're if we're making money the tool, then you know we we we, we start to take away the power of mammon in our lives. But if yep. we're but if we're making money the goal, then we're giving ourselves up to mammon more and more, and our yeah. allegiance yeah. becomes to mammon to the money more than Man. God Himself or Christ Himself. Yes, which kind of goes back to the gospel of the kingdom and yep. the gospel of allegiance to the kingdom yep. of God versus yep. any other kingdoms that any are here kingdoms. on this earth. Mm. which is the kingdom of mammon, obviously that we're not supposed to give ourselves over to that kingdom, but to the kingdom mm. of God. Man, you rent pretty good too. I mean, that's uh, I think I love that you use the word allegiance there. Uh, I think that is exactly right. There's a, another good resource out there called completing capitalism. It's written by some of the folks in, with the Mars candy company and they're, they're humongous international, but they're uh, not publicly traded. They're still a family business, just a humongous one. Close and there's some there's some sort of faith, you know, behind that. I'm not sure about that family and what's going on there. But they make the case pretty convincingly that to your point, that money makes a wonderful tool and a horrible master. It's good. Yeah. Which it's is really good. They and you go back to Jesus, you know, in that passage around Luke nineteen ish, somewhere around there. Uh sixteen says somewhere in there, he, he basically tells that parable about the uh shrewd steward it's a it's a story about a businessman it disturbs a lot of people at the end of it though he says look and here he combines it all into one sentence use unrighteous mammon so he calls it unrighteous it's dangerous it can become to your point a snare an idol a god that you give your allegiance to you but jesus says use unrighteous mammon to win friends for the kingdom in other words, to quote Hector Felix, Jesus said, use it as a tool. Don't give your allegiance to it. Give your allegiance to the kingdom. Hmm. But use that tool to win friends for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's right out. That's the red letters, man. That's right out of the mouth of Jesus. And that, I think, is your point. And I think that's, uh, you know, and we can keep talking about this or whatever other questions you got around this crony capitalism. But I think this is where. I do believe this. I believe that in our churches in general, uh, almost 30 years as a pastor, lots of pastor friends, lots of consulting with other churches. Everyone is all wound up about politics, about liberal conservative, about Trump or Biden, about gay marriage and this, that, and the other, abortion, what in all issues. And I understand that uh, the, the Bible, that the scripture, that our faith speaks to all of those. 
I actually think the greatest spiritual danger in our churches is what we're talking about right now. Hmm. Greed That's right. and allegiance to money, not using it as a tool for the kingdom, but stockpiling it in direct contradiction to what Jesus said. Don't build bigger barns. When you have enough, right. you have enough. If, right. if, if, if you fill up your current barn, you probably have enough. Don't build an even bigger one. Mm-hmm. Uh, use it right. instead for the kingdom. And all of us who love Jesus and we'll go, we'll, I mean, we'll go to the mat. We'll argue with anybody about that. Jesus really was the son of God. And then we blissfully ignore his teaching on money. Uh, Which so, kind of goes back to the secular sacred divide, right? That There you go. That we there like our, our silos, that we like our, our boxes because yep. I mean, yep. may, maybe there's competing uh like allegiances in our in our lives. Uh, so maybe if we can give twenty percent allegiance to, you know, this kingdom and twenty percent <laughs> allegiance to that kingdom, then there you go. You know, man. Because don't you think that's why Jesus got killed? I mean, for, forget for a minute the metaphysics and all the doctrine around atonement and propitiation and all that. Just at a human level, he wouldn't stay in his damn box. Uh, he'd go into the temple and kick over the money changers. He would chastise the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he wouldn't stay in a nice, comfortable rabbi box and just say pithy things in quotable quotes. Uh, and the powers that be, some of them were religious, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Some of them were political, uh, Pilate, uh, Herod, uh, Romans. Uh, the powers that be, if you're not going to stay in your sacred lane and just say inoffensive, nice rabbi things, then we're going to kill you. I think at a human level, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, he was coming down with a whole new kingdom that was competing against all the yes. kingdoms currently. And yes. he was stirring the pot saying all these kingdoms that are down here on earth, whether they're institutions or, or you know, uh, beings or entities, uh, they're not the right kingdom. Ah. I have the kingdom of God and all allegiance, you know, is to the kingdom of God. Therefore, the yeah. reign and rule of the kingdom of God is yeah. superior over all the other kingdoms. Man, do you like allegiance better than the word faith? Because I, th- I think mm. I do. What do you think? So that was actually part of my topic here as well. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, like Scott McKnight has a really, mm. you know, good thought process and thought like leadership around the gospel of allegiance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, over some of these other maybe words or uh, systems um, that the gospel of of allegiance um, is a little bit maybe better uh, framework of what Jesus was trying to do back back in his day. And though the words kingdom and allegiance are kind of foreign to us as 21st century, you know, postmodern living in America Christians, because, you know, we don't live necessarily in the kingdom. Well, you can make the argument, but we don't necessarily live in the, in the kingdom like Jesus did back in the day. You know, that requires complete That's right. devotion That's right. and allegiance to a kingdom, to a power, to a being, you know, like you did like back in the day. Man, I, Okay, let's talk about that then. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for uh, Scott McKnight, Dr. McKnight's thought leadership. He, I actually had him for one course way back in the day uh, at a different school. Uh, and he was already stirring things up a little bit then. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, let, here's something I've uh, come to a conviction about. Uh, 
uh, again, also back in the day, I read some guy named uh, Fowler who wrote a book about the stages of faith development. So he was trying to apply the best of psychology, the best of sociology, the best of human architecture uh, that we knew about. And he was writing basically uh, ooh, 40 years ago, but he was trying to apply it to faith development. But he makes a careful distinction between faith, belief, and religion, hmm. which I think is actually helpful here. So I won't go again into a long uh, diatribe about although I could, uh, but let me talk. He would say something along these lines. Belief is the word we use. We ask people, so what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe Muhammad is the prophet? Do you believe in reincarnation? We use that word belief around doctrines, around metaphysical beliefs, about around the, the points of a religion. And a religion is really kind of just the codified, organized arrangement of beliefs. Here's the short cut to the chase of what he says about faith. He says, faith is actually neither one of those. Faith is underneath those. Faith is a human characteristic. All humans are hardwired to ask about meaning and purpose hmm. and to give their allegiance to something or someone. That is, he, he didn't use this phrase. Now, now I'm just uh, using a little, bit, a little bit more modern. He would say that faith is the human operating system. It's hardwired in for us to want to know what's going on. Big picture. Why am I on planet Earth? Is there meaning and purpose in the midst of all this randomness and evil and suffering and callousness? And he would say that that quest, that willingness and that desire to give our allegiance to something that will make sense of the world, hmm. that's faith. And that's hardwired. Atheists have faith on his definition. They may have no belief and no religion, but they have faith because they have, they have given their something. allegiance somewhere mm. in a search, in that human search for meaning and purpose. So what do you think of that? I kind of like that distinction between faith, belief, and religion. No, I think you're right. I think that tees it up uh, like differently, that we mm -hmm. all have an allegiance to something or someone mm -hmm. or some kind of being, whether yep. we want to you know, word it that way or not. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to the secular, uh, secular, mm -hmm. uh, sacred divide where mm -hmm. faith is just a sacred yep. or sacred box, sacred yep. bubble, like, so to speak. But when you talk about allegiance that superpasses any kind of sacred secular divide, cause yep. it's, it's over it. It's overarching over that. Oh man. See, it, Fowler will use the phrase, uh, ultimate concern. What is your ultimate concern? Take, just take the religion and the doctrine and all that out of it. Just what is your ultimate concern? The way I would put it is if the house of your life was burning down, what would you grab on the way out? What's your ultimate concern? You've got one. And by the way, I th the, the house of your life may, is very likely to burn down before your life is over with. It will eventually burn down at the end. What are you going to take with you? What's your ultimate concern? See, I, th I love that because it's not a religious question. It's not a spiritual right. question. It's a human question. That's right. Uh, it's, not, it's not secular. It's not sacred. It's just human. Uh, I actually would make the case it's a sacred question because I think human beings are sacred. But I'll even put that aside and just say every human being has an ultimate concern. And I'll use your word. I love it a lot. 
we have all given our allegiance to something. And here's the rub. Here's why I think it's restless in our culture right now. I think there's a restlessness in our churches because at some level we know we need a better God, small g, better God, small g. At some level, we have given our allegiance to things that just haven't panned out. We gave our allegiance to a pastor. We gave our allegiance to some doctrines. We, we're reformed or we're anti-reformed. We gave our allegiance to whatever. And a lot of us are restless because we we're in search of a better God, small g. I think even Christians need to repent of their false ultimate concerns. So you, you, that's, that's what you trigger for me is this sense that I know so many people who are restless because the God they thought, well, I've, more than once in my uh, life, I have told someone, someone has confronted me with, I don't believe in God anymore. And given the context, it depends on context, but more than once have I said, well, that's good because the God you believe in isn't worth believing in. And so you're certainly not worth giving your allegiance to. Hmm. Uh, you need to be in search of a better God. Hmm. And part, my personal bias is to point you toward Jesus and what he thought God was like. I think that'd be a great place to start, but you decide. <laughs> I've had that conversation uh, more than once. That's good. That's good. Well, well, well let let me pivot the conversation to something similar within the same context. Maybe it's like adjacent to this like, conversation. Okay. Um, I love quotes. So <laughs> that's what you me, got. That's right. So let me tee it up with this quote. It says, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering in the living Christ. Hmm. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. Hmm. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Ouch. <laughs> so how's that for a quote there you go pretty good one yep so you want to talk about church do you i do want to talk about church in the context of it of the enterprise yep. uh you know uh like yep. conversation uh yep. before you kind of go on your rift you know on the <laughs> yeah, and rifts, you know me well <laughs> yes that's right so let me add this other feel to the rift and sure. then you know kind of see what this uh as far as like takes us there's a new book out by what's her name um pull this up real quick here caitlin Beatty. uh Beatty. Mm -hmm. uh it's titled uh celebrities for jesus oh. how personas platforms and uh sorry how personas platforms and profits are hurting the church man i was just i was thinking about that as you were asking the question that title i didn't know the author but i was thinking about that title as you were asking the question wow yeah. okay so in the context of the quote yeah in the context of this author yep. writing this book of what she sees in current you know society and current culture yes what's your drew dotson rift <laughs> Oh, man. Well, first off, I'll start off by telling you a story. Uh, uh, man, gosh, way back in the day, uh, nearly 30 years ago, early as a pastor, first five years for sure of helping start a, a church, I got invited to go speak at a pastor's conference. And I made the mistake of saying, yes, I'll, I'll speak at the pastor conference. So I went out to uh, Colorado in a beautiful setting. It was a denomination I wasn't familiar with. It's an old line 
kind of reform slash Presbyterian denomination. Uh, it's very uh, ethnic. It's an ethnic uh, denomination rooted back in Europe, to your point about culture. Uh, and I was supposed to speak on the emotional health of a pastor. So what I talked about was the danger and betrayal of becoming a professional. Hmm. And that in the marketplace, when you trade intimacy for money, we call it prostitution. And that a lot of our pastors have prostituted ourselves in order to become professionals. Uh, I gave that talk on the first day of a three-day conference. Uh, no one would talk to me after the first day, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> so they gave you like the big X, huh? They wouldn't eat with me. Joe was with me. We, no one would eat with us. One guy came to me the second day, and he said, you're my favorite speaker at the conference. So this is one guy. Before I could say anything, I started to say thank you. He said, don't he said because you told the truth. And then he walked away. <laughs> that was my experience at this three-day conference. So uh, I think the title of that book, I've not read the book. Uh, if you get go behind the, the curtain, if you get into the green room of mega churches, uh, all the talk is about bigger. All the talk is about platform and stage. All the talk is about numbers whether that's attendance, membership, and certainly dollars, uh, the building, square footage. Uh, you could substitute uh, Jesus for dish soap, and you can have the same conversations about marketing, market share, advertising, and getting wealthy and providing maximum benefit to shareholders, hmm. i.e. the staff and the senior pastor or the denomination because they take their share, their cut, and you owe them 15% every year for the denomination. And the uh, huge retirement policy that's backed up by an unbelievably big hedge fund. So uh, some people might think I'm caricaturing. I am not. I've been in those rooms. I have sat with leaders of large Christian enterprises and churches, and they are not evil. They are not. They are so often well-intentioned, and they have been so they have been uh, what would you call hijacked, subtly perverted by mammon and the system and the American uh, air that we breathe of consumerism and enterprise. We I actually won't go too long on this rant. We are consumers from the moment we're born in this country. I've watched my children and grandchildren. By the time there are three, they've been marketed to. If they watched a cartoon or read the back of a cereal, or had the back of a cereal box read to them, they already want toys. They already want a screen. They already want something. And where it comes to us naturally, and and this this enterprise, this uh, economy of ours would collapse if we suddenly quit being consumers. It would it would collapse within thirty days if we quit buying stuff. So the church is an enterprise. Yes, I do. Here's what I'm not sure I've ever said this out loud. I certainly have never said this out loud where there was a microphone and a recorder uh, and recording going on. But I'll say it out loud. Uh, I actually think we need to burn it down. I actually think every building needs to be uh, sold, if not sold, repurposed and given to the community. Uh 
uh, given to a school, uh, turned into a counseling center, or just straight up sold and the money used uh, to be wise about starting enterprises that would benefit the poor. I actually think we need to burn it down. Did you ever see this cheesy 60s movie called The Shoes of the Fisherman? I have not. It's it's about a working priest uh, who is just a he's just a working priest, and he he works his way up through the ranks of the Catholic Church and actually becomes a cardinal. Eventually, he's well thought of. Uh, he, I won't tell you the movie, but he becomes the Pope. and at the same time he becomes the Pope, there's about to be nuclear war in the world because China there's a major famine in China. Russia has food. And America has grain, and China is about to unleash its armies to get food for its people. It's that desperate. And so here, spoiler alert, if you ever watch it, what happens is the Pope, against all his counsel, against the bishops, against everyone around him, against all human counsel, he pledges all of the financial assets of the Roman Catholic Church to back loans to China to alleviate the famine. That's what I mean by burn it down. We are sitting on millions and millions of dollars of air-conditioned space and property, property on which we don't pay any taxes because we're a church, so we're exempt from property taxes. Uh, see, I, I, oh boy, I haven't said this where I've been recorded. I'm going to say another one. I think we need to take away the tax deduction for giving to churches. I do. I think we just need to burn it down. And to your point, go back to Christianity as a movement funded out of the pockets of people who believe in Jesus and what he was up to. And use our wealth, because we are unbelievably wealthy, to back up food for the hungry, clothing for the naked, Honest work for the impoverished and put that money to use. That's my belief. So there you go. See what you triggered out. Now, now I'm actually, I've been recorded saying that stuff. <laughs> now I'm going to really be in trouble. <laughs> so what do you think of that, Mr. Felix? Well, that's a lot. You just said a <laughs> lot there. Um, so let me ask this. Um, how did we get here though? Mm. I mean, if, if you know what Jesus, uh, if what Jesus of Nazareth started was a movement centered around the living Christ, yep. How do we get from that fellowship to where we are today? Oh boy! And what are some you know pivots that we can take to move mm. the Titanic mm. around, like so to speak? You know, here's the hope in the, in your question. Uh, if you study Christian history. It, it can actually be kind of depressing, to your point, about how we get uh, diverted, how we get shanghaied by other things. But all here's what's great about the history of the church. At some point, someone, someone raises their hand and says, horseshit, this is not the right direction. And a renewal movement breaks out. A revival breaks out. A leader comes along. A Francis of Assisi. Uh, takes off all of his wealth, throws away his gold and his nice clothes, and starts talking to birds and animals and to people, and launches an entire movement in medieval Europe. That's the hope of where we are. It, 
I don't have a lot of hope that the systems will renovate themselves. Systems don't renovate themselves. People renovate systems. Hmm. The systems have a power of their own. They are principalities and powers. In a megachurch, I have counseled megachurches, and then I've watched well-intentioned men and women who are going to renovate the system, turn it into a grassroots movement, and the system ate them alive. They got their butts fired. And the system kept right on stroking, just like it had before they came along. They had their three years of glory, and then they got their pink slip. If people still go about pink slips, they got fired. Systems have that power. Systems will not renovate themselves. People renovate systems. And so, uh, how we got here. Well, just to speak to the American thing, because there is, there is a lot of history how what, what the Roman culture did, what the Greek culture did, what then European culture did. Uh, and some of it was good. A lot of it, though, co-opted the movement of Jesus and turned the movement of Jesus into something than, other than what it was intended to be, an institution, an institution that was more interested in its own survival and not in the founder's mission. So the hope is, I think we're in a moment, Hector, uh, people like you are restless. People like you are asking these kinds of questions. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know where the next Martin Luther King is, or the next Francis of Assisi. I will say this about what happened in America uh, back in the 1800s. Everyone was just thrilled about the new technology and the new science. Steam was being harnessed. Uh, uh, science was on the move. Uh, people were looking through telescopes. People were looking at the old Bible manuscripts. People were building machinery uh Locomotives, it was just, it was a thrilling time and people and theologians and pastors and people in Christianity were people of their time. What else could they be? And they loved all the new technology and even some revivalists, Finney is a name from the 1800s. He began to apply marketplace techniques to close the sale at the end of revival services when he was pleading for conversions. He instituted something he called the anxious bench. And if his sermon had stirred anything, you were you came down and you sat at the anxious bench. And then people were trained to close the sale. Uh, and I grew up in a denomination that grew out of that history. We had altar calls three times a week. And a pastor was judged on his ability to close the deal, close the sale, get a conversion, uh, and then get you into the baptistry. And all I'm saying is this, this is a big topic, but but we, we can't be anything but people of our time. We don't have any choice. And here in the United States, as technology and our market, including crony capitalism, has grown, we have not been discerning about what it's doing to us as a Christian movement. We have not been. We have been gullible. We have been naive. We've even been ignorant of our past. And so we keep repeating these mistakes and letting ourselves get co-opted. And so, mega churches, mega pastors, mega platforms, mega budgets, mega buildings. And we, we, we have seen way too much of the fallout of that these last five years. So, so it's, you can't get out of your culture. To your point earlier, we're, we're like those fish. We don't know what water is. Fish doesn't know what water is. It just is. But when we've seen things not work, when we've seen moral failure, when we've seen people get wealthy, greedy, idolatry in the name of Jesus, what we do need to recognize is, oh, 
there is something called water and it's getting polluted. Hmm. Let's be discerning. Let's have these conversations. Uh, what has what is what in this water is beginning to affect? Also, uh, okay, one more on my riff, and then it's your turn again. Uh, oh, this would be fifteen years ago talking to some mega pastors. And again, this goes on. Most people aren't aware this kind of thing goes on behind the scenes. These mega pastors uh, from several churches in a metropolitan area I will not name had banded together behind the scenes and hired a marketing firm to do uh, consumer surveys in secret. In other words, a secret shopper type stuff, you know, where the secret shopper goes in and then tells you what's good about your your shelves and your approach and your Mr. Friendly at the front door and what's the customer experience. Well, these guys hired a way high-end uh, marketing guru, secret shopper guy. He visited and his team visited all their mega churches. And the whole point was he would generate, they generated a big report, big old fat report. I never saw it, but they told me it was a big report, very professional, very well done, analyzing the customer experience of the religious shoppers at all their mega churches. And they sat down for the reveal. The, here's what was reported to me, Hector. Before he would talk about his report, he was this guy was not a believer. This was just a marketplace dude who did this for a living. Good at his job. Before he went into the report, reports on the table closed. He looks at all these mega church pastors, and here was his opening statement. And he pointed at the report. He said, do you guys actually believe that this is what Jesus had in mind? This is from a non-believer. Wow. Do you guys actually believe that this is what Jesus had in mind? And with that being said, he then launched into the report for which they were paying. We have been seduced, co-opted. We have been naive. Bigger is better. All I need is a little bit more. A friend of mine used to say, I don't want to buy any, I don't want to buy any more land except what's next to mine. And that's the motto of a lot of churches. And I don't want any more members except for the ones that are next to mine. So there you go. I am uh, I'm actually not jaded. I am hopeful, and here's why. I am optimistic that younger people like you, Hector like Andrea, like others who are friends of mine, are asking this question. And there will be a renovation. I believe that. There will be a resurrection. There will be a cleansing. There will be a, I hate to use the word revival because of what it stirs up, but will, there'll be a revival, so to speak. There'll be a recovery. I don't think it will go well for our current institutions. And it will not come from them. It will come from people like you. I'm too old except to poke it with a stick every now and then. But it, will come, it will come from younger men and women who innovate, who are entrepreneurial, who are willing to try things that people in the institution thinks are whack. That's where it will come from. So, man, sorry, there's, there's a riff, rant, rant, riff, whatever that was. Uh, I, we, that's how we got here, though. Uh, undiscernment. Und we, we have not learned as we were, in we're instructed to discern the spirits. We're instructed to understand the times, Old Testament, the men of Issachar, I believe, who understood the times, the prophets of the New Testament who could discern the spirits. 
uh, some of you, like you, Hector, you, some of you, some of my friends are beginning to discern the times and to discern the spirits, and we really need that. It will eventually lead us to something fresh and new. I guess the only downer is it might take fifty years to do it. Usually, it doesn't happen what we're talking about right now in five years. But but I would I st- I'll go back to my other rant and I'll let you talk. I, I think a good beginning would be just to burn it all down, give it all away cash it all in, and uh, make sure we have not given our allegiance to mammon. What does that make you think about? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot. That was a lot for sure. Um, Yeah, it really goes back to the secular, sacred divide. Mm, How so? How so? So what are we trying to build? I mean, if we're, mm. if we're, if we're trying to build a physical enterprise, a physical you know, entity, then, of course, we're going to seek after some of these secular yes. methods, some of these yes. secular systems to, to do it. But if we're wanting to grow the sacred, mm. if we believe that everything is sacred, mm. Are the sacred systems, methods, and processes the same as the secular systems, methods, and processes? That's a great question. What, yeah, what if, what if the whole point of Jesus and Christianity is not, as we've said already, a sacred silo, a religion, a religious institution? What if the point was just to make us more human? What if we were meant to be sacred, working on the planet for the benefit of the planet? Loving our neighbor, neighbor understood radically as including the animals and the fish and the birds and the plants and creation, as creation. well as all of our human neighbors. What if, what if that's sacred? What if that's sacred work? Now, what's the point of the Jesus movement? Now, to your question, what are we building? Uh, I th- what do you think about this, Hector? I, th- I think some degree of organization or even institutionalization is necessary. That's what humans do. Uh, if you form a rotary club, you've got to have some bylaws. If you, even if you form a simple LLC business, a way simple solopreneur business, guess what? You've got to fill out a little bit of paperwork. Uh, what, don't you think that some level of organization and even institutionalism is required or no? What do you think? Yeah, I, I do think it's required. I mean, we're human beings and if we're, if we're not putting up any guardrails, any kind of forms or structures to who we are, then we can easily get sidetracked and mm. deviated. Mm. Um, but then the question becomes how much guardrails, if you will, how yep. much yep. structure is needed, wanted, yep. For human flourishing, you know, have have we gone the extreme of creating too much of it to where it's coming back and claiming allegiance over us? Or Mm. Mm. uh, do we create enough that way we can, you know, Mm. uh, spread the allegiance of the kingdom of God on it? Man, one of my teachers in uh, not in seminary, but he was he was one of my teachers coined a phrase about the early Christian movement in church. He basically said the early Christian movement was a mixture of simple churches and complex networks. It's good. It's it's good, isn't it? Simple churches and complex networks. Now, my observation on that being a 
smart aleck, is, well, we've reversed that, haven't we? We now have these incredibly complex churches that are extremely expensive to run and maintain. And we do almost no networking because we're building our silo here. And so I, I think the genius of the early Christian movement, and whatever happened to it, as it penetrated the Roman Greek culture, as it penetrated medieval Europe, we, that's a whole and good topic. But the early, the genius back at the source was way simple churches. Oh, my gosh. There was some organization. There was. It was, it was more of a family-type organization. Hmm. It was way simple. And then, you can see this in Paul's letters in life, incredibly complex networking. All across, Even post-New Testament, we have historical records of the complex networking that went on across the Roman Empire as these little, simple churches were cropping up. And it was that complex network the nodes were these little simple churches with 30 people in them, 100 people. That would have been huge, 100. That's the movement that won the day in the Roman Empire, that won the hearts and minds of the people, and eventually the attention of the government. Okay, so simple churches, complex networks. I think we've turned that upside down. I'm also wondering, because I know you're not done, if we should call this to a halt for today, so I know you actually do have to, speaking of capitalism, you got to make a living at some point. We've been going yeah. a little over an hour. Uh, yeah. Anything, if you got, if you got another minute or two, uh, what do you, you want to say or ask a question for the future? Or what do you want to do to kind of uh, bring it to a pause, not a stop, but a pause today? What's on your mind? Yeah, what's on my mind is that you're obviously up to something. Um, and if you didn't believe that the future was brighter than our dark past, mm. then, you know, you wouldn't be having these conversations, pursuing the right steps forward. Mm -hmm. So maybe what is next for the future is what are some of those steps and, huh. and, or and steps and, or what are some of those questions are you are asking? Yep. So I believe that we're in a time that we should be asking more questions than having answers. Oh, so, good for you. Wow. So great. that's a great statement. Yep. So what are the questions and steps, you know, these like baby steps, you know, yep. that we can, can be taking and will be taking to mm -hmm. have a brighter future than, than a darker past. Man. Okay. So yeah, let me just uh, join you and kind of pointing toward a, a future conversation. I, toward the end of my pulpit ministry, and I've said this to you, but I found myself saying this in different forms. I found myself saying that I believe that the future of the movement of Jesus lies in the business office, not in the church office. Now, just to unpack that a little bit, what I mean by that is regular people engaged in the marketplace as human beings have been since they were human beings, whether we were bartering or giving pretty rocks for money. Uh, we, we have been in the market. That's what human beings do. We trade. You've got corn. I've got wheat. Let's do a deal. Uh, we've been doing that since there were humans. Uh, that's where the future of the movement lies. Back, you know, the uh, we, ha we have letters from early Roman government officials. And here was their complaint. Not about the bishops, not about the preachers, but about just those raggedy Christians. He said, we can't Get them to quit gossiping about Jesus in the marketplace. No matter what laws we pass, no matter what kind of persecution we do, 
We cannot stop the women. We cannot stop the men. We, they sit around in the marketplace making their baskets or selling their rugs, and they gossip about Jesus, and we can't seem to stop them. It wasn't the clergy. It wasn't the famous authors like Tertullian or later St. Augustine. It was the regular people engaged in marketplace activity, making a living, gossiping about Jesus, who pushed the movement or took care of their neighbor, took in the baby that their neighbor had exposed to die because it was a girl or it was deformed and the Christian neighbor took it in. Or when the plague hit and all the rich people got out of town because they had the money to get out of town, the Christians stayed and nursed the sick, and some of them caught the plague and died. It was regular marketplace people. That's the future of the movement. So we'll talk more about this because I think it's uh, people like you. it's the people, not the platform. It's the people, not the platform, and it's people who are not clergy particularly clergy who have been trained. This is a whole nother rant. I will not go into at this point. Our training systems are broken for our clergy. And so our clergy don't understand you, Hector, and they don't understand your world. Uh, and so, so just to say, I'll point us in that direction. I do think I have some convictions about some steps. I have some convictions about, who we need to be looking to, and maybe we can talk about those in another conversation. I'd love that. Let's do it. Okay. Well, Hector, uh, man, thanks. Uh, I always love your questions. If if the rants were too long on my end, I apologize, but I actually can't do too much about them. You seem to trigger these riffs and rants, so it's your fault, not my fault. Uh, and to our listeners, we thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed uh, this. Hope you enjoyed Hector. What a thoughtful uh, businessman. I call him a young businessman because he's way younger than me. But he, he's a mature man with a family, but he is thoughtful about these things. I hope he has triggered some questions that you might have. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And the invitation is still open. Uh, be brave like Hector, like Andrea was. Uh, send us an email. Let us know if you'd be interested in interviewing me, setting the topic of a conversation, uh, triggering your own version of a, of a rant. From Drew, would love all of that. We're going to have Hector back on to talk more about these things as well. But we're inviting you to contact us and let us know of your interest. And we'll talk about it and uh, see see how it goes. So, grateful for you, Hector, our friendship. Thank you for today. And uh, to all of our listeners, much love. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.